Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Every once in a while, we try and uh, change the game a little bit, change things up a little bit. And uh, for the first time in our podcast, we're going to be starting a new section in every one of our podcasts that we do called Caught My Eye. And on this episode, we're going to be looking at a few things that have caught the eye of both uh, Professor Ross Tucker and myself and some of the people that uh, we interact with on a weekly basis. And most importantly, we want you, our patron members, uh, to contribute towards these discussions every single week. And for those of you that support us on Patreon, you can go to Patreon Message Services and you'll be able to send us a message with something that's caught your eye. And it could be anything. It could be anything that you've seen in the media, a discussion point that's been happening around the world of sport. Um, it could be a scientific paper that you've seen that you need some explanation on. And it's just an opportunity for you to uh, kind of interact with us and uh, share with us stuff that's caught your eye. Maybe we can have a closer look at uh, whatever has caught your eye and look at it in slightly more depth, uh, Ross Tucker. Yeah, because I think we love producing this podcast, but it's always been an objective to create a community around the science of sport which i'll be the first to admit we haven't always done successfully i have every intention of doing it but then work and life gets in the way you know so what i hope is that by having a regular feature like this we'll be able to listen to your interests and as 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 you just said um use patron this is for patrons specifically because you are our vip listeners yeah and use that to get in touch and say hey this caught my eye what do you think? And then we may rip it to pieces or we may agree or we may uh, offer some insights that you disagree with, whatever. But it'll be interesting to start every show like this. Absolutely. And there's so many different topics in the world of sport. I know Ross and I, as we prepare for these podcasts, um, we have many discussions on WhatsApp groups that allow us to kind of uh, discuss what we're going to discuss. And there's always probably five or six topics that we think maybe we should talk about this. Um, so there's always opportunity for us to um, open this up. And as we get more of these uh, these uh, topics coming from your patron members, um, we can obviously not get to all of them, but we'll try and get to as many as we can um, every podcast that we do, even though we might have a theme per podcast, we'll always have a caught my eye at the start of the podcast uh, with stuff that interests you. If you don't forget, if you want to support us on Patreon, you can check out the Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and just look for the Science of Sport podcast and you can contribute any amount. There's uh, three different tiers, um, from very cheap tiers to very expensive tiers, but uh, you can decide what you would like to contribute. And then you obviously have the chance to be able to contribute a question to our podcast. Anyway, so let's move on to our first thing that caught my eye in the last couple of weeks and there's a there's a couple of things that have been sort of mulling around in my head but uh, I saw a, a paper we were looking through this uh, journal of athletic training I think and preparing for a, a previous podcast and when you look at these sort of things there's so many juicy bits of um, material in there and this is one where I, I read the title of it it was all about insufficient sleep in sports people 
And I asked Ross to have a look at it, and I automatically thought it's got to be all about how sleep is important for for athletes and why it, how it changes the athlete's performance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But actually, it was more about concussion than it was about sleep. So it was one of those it was one of those papers that had a juicy title was probably a little bit narrow in, in in the way that it came out. Yeah, this one caught your eye, but I don't think it, <laughs> I don't think it caught your interest once you began actually reading it. I was I'm different because I actually study concussion now in my day job, so I was quite interested in reading a little bit about it. And it's the title literally is Prospective Implications of Insufficient Sleep for Athletes. Yeah. Which is way broader than it turns out to be. And just as a an aside, when I write a paper, I try and name it because you, you it's, it's the same as when you're trying to headline an article in a magazine, I would have yeah. thought. You're trying to find impact. Totally. Because you're still competing for eyeballs. Correct. <laughs> Even in a scientific journal. Are you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you get cited and citation is currency okay. and equity. And so you try and come up with impactful titles. Okay. But then other, other academics take the opposite approach and they come up with the least descriptive title they can find. You know, something unbelievably vague. For instance... Description of 653 head injuries in professional rugby. Could be a title. I would call it something that actually tells the finding in the study, yes. in, the, in the title, you know, as in uh, upright tackles predict head injury in 650 tackles in rugby union. I would, yeah. bury, the, I would bury the headline, the, the, the finding in the title. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, I suppose not all sports scientists are necessarily journalistically inclined. They just doing what is uh, uh, seems the obvious headline to a study. Yeah, and, and, and so it depends on how you trained, because I, I, I was with Tim Noakes, and I remember even my first ever honest project, the first research I ever did was a study where we put cyclists in, in a hot or cold laboratory, and then we tested performance, body temperature, sweat rates, and that sort of stuff. And I remember writing it up for my honest thesis, and I called it something really bland, probably, like um, effect of heat on performance during a 20K time trial. Yeah. And I sent it to, to Tim for his reviews and so on. And he cha- the first thing he changes is the title. He's, he's changed yeah. it to something like hypothermia induces voluntary fatigue in advance of blah, 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 or something. And he, I Which is much exactly more interesting. Than, yeah. So that was my first experience. And so I say, okay, from now on, I'm going to call my papers there. And for those of you who don't know, Professor Tim Noakes, obviously very well known here in South Africa, and not only South Africa, around the world for a number of books, particularly around um, hydration and heat and all sorts of things. And uh, Ross, obviously, as he's mentioned, was one of his uh, pupils, I guess, uh, for many, many years. Yeah, Although these exactly. days, sometimes you disagree on a few things that Professor Tim Noakes talks about. Most things, actually, unfortunately. <laughs> <coughs> anyway, right we, from, we digress. We digress. Right from vaccines, all the, diet all the way to vaccines these days. <laughs> so here, uh, actually, I want to read it to you. So he called it, and this is what it was eventually published as, Impaired Exercise Performance in the Heat is associated with an anticipatory reduction in skeletal muscle recruitment. Okay. So it's a statement of fact right? as the title of the paper. Yes. <laughs> as opposed to mine, effects of, on, you know, so it's quite, it's, that's the difference. So he but, did teach you a thing or two. Yeah, oh, a lot, a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, you can, we can disagree now. It doesn't detract from how much I learned from him for yeah. sure. So anyway, so this one's called Prospective Implications of Sleep. So when I looked at it, I also thought this is going to be on mood, maybe injury, probably performance. Turns out it's very narrow. It's really just on concussion. Mm-hmm. And what they've done, it's a group out of Pennsylvania, primarily. A couple of the authors. One of the authors is also from uh, South Carolina. But Caitlin Riegler is the main author. And they've obviously capitalized on the University of Pennsylvania's athletic population. Because these schools, as you may know, they compete in a lot of activities, sports. And they have 
um, what seems to be quite a uh, broad concussion management program in, this, in the university where every student athlete has to do these baseline assessments at, at the start of a season. And then well, the way it works is if you have a concussion, you get tested again relative to baseline to, to check your status on recovery and so on. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And so they've capitalized on that baseline testing and they said, right, let's take a group. And in the end, they get 600 odd athletes and they it's measure nice, them. It's a nice sample size, isn't it? Yeah, it's good because that's yeah. always a challenge in these studies is you mm. get 100 people. If, in fact, when you now look also at concussions, given that concussion, whilst too common, is still relatively rare. Mm. <laughs> it's not like a every athlete gets concussed twice a year, luckily, they end up with a relatively low number of concussions, even though they had a high number of athletes. Make sense? Yeah. So, so they might be a little bit underpowered, if I was critical of it, because their, their primary outcome, concussion, is not 600. Yeah. It's, it's only Correct. a few. Yeah. Yeah. But what they then do is they have these, these athletes come in, and one of the things that the baseline testing does is asks how many hours you slept the night before. So it's subjective, which again is... You know, you could argue is a flaw because, but short of measuring the sleep quality with quite sophisticated sometimes equipment, you're not going to know it exactly. Well, you can wear a watch these days, can't you? These days it's easier, yeah. yeah. But I mean, for gold standard, you'd need, like when we interviewed Dale Ray, she explained how they would use really state-of-the-art stuff mm. to measure exactly how much time you spend in each phase of sleep. That would be interesting to mm. look at. But mm. you can understand, you want to do a quick and dirty, you yep. do it like this. And then what they do is they work out the average sleep time, which works out to be 7.1 hours per night. And then they take another group that got insufficient sleep, which they define as a one standard deviation less than average. And that works out to be five and 5.8 hours a night. Right. And they say, all right, let's, let's look at a group that slept more than average, more than seven hours a night, and a group that slept less than 5.8, so let's call it six hours a night, mm -hmm. and look at how many concussions each of those groups get. Just describe why the standard deviation, when you say standard deviation, that, that's what is an acceptable deviation from the, the measuring, what you're measuring against. Yeah, they, there's a section in the paper where they actually describe, because you could, you could come up with round easy numbers. Mm. You could say, we're going to say eight hours a night is a lot, yes. and six hours a night is little, yes. and between six and eight is medium. And we're interested in comparing high to low, so we'll go over eight and under six. But they decided that because it's athletes and students and, you know, maybe students don't behave like averages, <laughs> let's look at the actual sleep data we have and work out our ranges there. Right. So they're still trying to do the same thing. They want to get a high and a low and then kind of ignore the middle. But the way they've done it is they said, well, high is anything more than average. Where are we going to set low? Well, not less than average because then we'll be comparing someone who slept 7.2 hours to someone who slept 6.9. There's mm. no difference. No. So we want a gap between them. And where we'll make that gap. And if you make the gap one, too wide, the, the, the difference is obviously obvious. Yeah, and there'd be yeah. too few people in that smaller right. group. As it is, they, they have an imbalance in their numbers because the group that gets a lot of sleep, and I want to get this right, so forgive me while I scroll through it and tell you exactly what it was. Um, they get 102 athletes in the insufficient group mm. and 512 in the sufficient group. So right. ideally you'd want... This, well, they don't have to have the same numbers, but you want 300 at least in your smallest group. Yeah, you know? yeah. Anyway, so that's what they do. And then they track them over the course of their athletic student athletic careers. And they discover, and this is their sort of headline finding, is that if you are an insufficient sleeper at baseline, you're 
twice as likely to be concussed compared to someone who gets sufficient sleep. So 15.7% of those insufficient sleepers get concussed and only nine, eight to eight to 9% of the sufficient sleepers do. I mean, it's, it's so. a strange, I mean, it's a strange finding because there are so many questions that pop up straight away to say, mm. is the person that's not getting enough sleep more likely to be concussed because they're maybe <laughs> not as awake exactly. as the people exactly. that sleep more or exactly. is as a result of the lack of sleep? And so that's the problem when you do it. And, and this is a cross-sectional study, which, which has some usefulness. There's not, I'm not dismissing it, but the couple of problems is they get one sleep measure. It's the night before baseline. So you come in, Mike, the student, you get your baseline test. They ask, how did you sleep last night? So here we are, it's Thursday. I'm asking you how you slept Wednesday into Thursday. Yeah, and that could have been a bad night for you. Yeah. And every other night you would have been in the other group. And so that once-off measurement undermines their finding a little bit because mm. ideally you'd want to track them for a month and get like what is their consistent habitual sleep number, vo uh, volume, value, mm. quality, whatever you want to call mm. it. Right. So that's a problem. And then the other thing is you don't, you don't know what unmeasured associated factors drive it. Mm. So we know from rugby, for instance, that concussed people, concussed players are more likely to be concussed in future. So one concussion leads to an increased risk of a second and a third and a fourth. Concussion also can affect sleep. So mm. it's not impossible in this study that they actually, the, the poor sleep, assuming that one sort of measurement is true, Poor sleep is the consequence of concussion, which then causes another concussion. It's not the, sl the sleep. In other words, the sleep could be the outcome, not the cause. Make sense? Yes. Okay, I'm with you. Yeah. And there could be there could yeah. be other related fa factors as well. And and so, in all these these baseline tests, and I mean we we struggle with this, we don't struggle with it, but we're dealing with the same issues in rugby. Is they're quite blunt tools. Mm. Um, so you have these these symptom clusters. You know, they'll ask you about fatigue and dizziness, nausea, um, headaches that you have, sleeplessness, sleep, uh, um, sensitivity to noise and sensitivity to light. Some of them are cognitive, some of them are affective, emotional. And they can be confounded by things like depression, anxiety, mm. stress in life. And so they aren't necessarily perfect tools either to diagnose risk for concussion or recovery even for mm. concussion. So mm. Yeah, you're dealing in this environment with quite blunt tools for what can sometimes be quite a complex presentation of a concussion, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, what's quite fascinating about this is I've got one of these smart watches um, on, and I think a lot of people have these watches now where it measures your sleep every single night. So as you wake up in the morning, it says, are you awake? And you say yes, and it tells you whether your sleep is good, okay, or mm. subpar. Mm. And it would be fascinating that, all of that sleep data appears on this particular brand's um, website. So they've got access to probably thousands and thousands of sleep research that would give some indication of how the average person that is mm. sporty sleeps. And I'm always amazed that we don't see more research coming out of, I mean, I, I'll tell you what the brand is, Polar. Mm. So Polar, I've got a, a, a software stuff called Flow. So everything goes onto Flow. It automatically uploads to my phone. I can go onto my computer now and I can look back over the last three weeks and see how much I've slept, how well I've slept, and look on a graph. I can do a lot of, mm. you know, lovely stuff on there to see mm. exactly how I slept, compare that to my exercise curve, all that sort of thing. And I'm always amazed that, you know, having access to that, even though you say it's it, that the, the stuff that you have on your watch is a little bit blunt as opposed to the precise stuff that you get at a sleep clinic, sleep clinic, for instance, there must be a huge amount of 
data in there that is very useful in terms of the habits of modern people that are active. Yeah, and so the only ch- the challenge there for the researcher is what's like can I how much how much control can I gain over that data? Not necessarily can I get the data, mm. which in itself is interesting. I mean, like you mentioned there, that Polar's got access to all this. Do we sign? Because I'm also with Polar, by the way. Do we mm. sign something or check a checkbox that says that we're handing our data over to them? I don't remember doing no, that, but I, I probably ignored doing that. it. If so I probably did. they they would have to get your permission, I suppose, to use that data, but only or it's if opt it was out. specific. That's the other or way it's you do it. Make yeah. it opt out, and then, or otherwise, when you sign up and you create your account or something, I, I've never. See, that's one of those things you, you tick and you actually signed your life away and you didn't realize it. But yeah. maybe, but wh- anyway, once you get that data as a researcher now, you've got to have some degree of control. And for example, I did a race on Saturday and uh, <laughs> it, was, it was quite demanding. And Saturday night, my sleep was nowhere. Mm. I mean, my heart rate variability was as low as it's been in, in weeks, months. My resting heart rate was 25 beats higher than my average in the last month. Wow. Like, it was a, I was a mess. That was just because it was the result of the hard effort. Yeah, it was just this unbelievable stress that you've loaded. It was a five-hour effort, uh, max sort of Huge drive climb for at me, the end. massive climb at the end. Five hours, uh, yeah, and, and then this, the sympathetic nervous system is just so engaged, fired up, and you, you really are struggling. By Tuesday, it was right back down, resting heart rate mm. back down to normal, heart rate variability, beat-to-beat intervals, all the stuff that you've noted mm. as well. Then last night, we went out and we had a couple of beers and I met another mate and had another couple of beers. And this morning, I looked and my heart rate tonight, this morning, Thursday, looked the same as it did on Sunday morning. Wow. From the alcohol. Whew. And I've seen actually, uh, there's a couple of people I'm going to give you to follow on Twitter if you're interested in this space. They've been posting really good stuff on it. The effect of alcohol and the effect of exercise are very much the same on what you measure in the heart rate. So if I was studying it, I would have to have a way to try and control that because I wouldn't know what the cause was of what I was seeing. Yes. Because if I, if I only gave you my numbers, you would assume that yesterday I did another really, really hard exercise yes. thing. And you wouldn't know that it was the beers and the pizza and the, mm. yeah. Plus maybe, as here, I've got a little bit of a head cold. And, and whether and with actually... It's just you that struggles with beer consumption more than most. But I mean, well, I have <laughs> I have seen these these people on Twitter showing the same thing. Wow, know? that's amazing. So the, the two the two I would recommend you follow Doctor Doctor Sean Allen. That's S I A N Allen A L L E N. We are going to put the links in the. Uh, yeah, in I'll the put bio. their Twitter handles. Yeah. So it's mm. at Doctor Sean Allen, and then the other one is Marco Altini. Both of whom, by the way, I, I'm, I really would like to get as guests on this podcast and discuss this. Yeah, it's at Altini underscore Marco. And they, they post really handy graphs. Like Marco is an endurance athlete himself. He did a race recently that he didn't finish because of excessive heat. And he posted his heart rate variability and recovery in the week after. And you'll see the same thing. It's just your, your sympathetic nervous system and your that, that's, that fight or flight balance. You know, the sympathetic, parasympathetic is just yeah. haywire. So they're really good followers, and they'll explain a lot of the stuff we've just been discussing to you as well. Yeah, the sympathet- sympathetic nervous system, and then you get what's the other? The parasympathetic. Parasympathetic. Just, the opposite just, side just of for it, the so. sake of knowing more about science, just to, you know, what the sympathetic, just to describe briefly what those both are. Yeah. So par- sympathetic is the stress response, which is the system that gears you for effectively fight or flight. <clears throat> so the release of adrenaline, that pupils dilating. <laughs> Uh, when you get a when you get a scare or when you're in a competitive situation, 
um, some of its you know, the changes the blood flow distribution to the body and so on as well. So everything that gears you up for exercise, right, or battle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and in parasympathetic systems, the opposite. That's the one that gears you up for rest. Okay. And so there's nerves. For instance, the vagus is maybe the most well-known one. You know, when people faint, it's often vagal discharge from that nerve, and it lowers the blood pressure. It mm. changes the blood flow in the opposite direction. It brings you into a state where you're more geared physiologically to digest food and recover and re repair what the exercise might have taken out of you. Okay. And if you're chronically stressed and the sympathetic system is chronically active, then you measure it as heart rate variability going down. So higher heart rate variability is an indication of more recovered state and greater parasympathetic activity. So just take a step back from this. So heart rate variability, just what do you mean by variability? In other words, the differences between your low and your high points? No, the difference in, in, in um, the timing between one beat and the next. Okay, all right. So the rhythm, it's effectively like the rhythm of the heart. That, right. So you can have a heart rate of 60 with low variability where every beat is one, two, three, four, right. five. Or 60 where it's one, two, three. You know, that right, kind of with you, yes, okay. And that, that's an indication of parasympathetic sympathetic balance. So high variability, in other words, not yeah, really. A healthier, healthier system has more variability. More variability, mm. okay. Mm. So the more metronome you are, actually the less healthy you are. Right. Okay. Yeah. I didn't so know that's that. one of the metrics that's used. And there are various, you see the problem, like if you go that back to- That seems slightly counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because you'd think that you'd be more metronomic if you were healthier rather than being a bit more- yeah, as you see, society teaches you consistency is good, but mm. actually physiologically it's not necessarily in this context. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, you can you can get various tools that measure this now. When you get rings, you get watches. You yes. get You get, things you get that, rings. That's yeah, true. yeah. You get... Um, the aura ring. Yeah. You get apps on phones that you then put next to your bed and they yeah. measure allegedly your breathing. I think the further away it gets from your body, the less likely it's to be accurate, obviously. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the, then there are... So where these things used to fail was that they weren't measuring it right. Now I think they do, and mm. now the the gap is in the interpretation of the results. You know, that's mm. where you have to be quite careful now. I think I find mine's pretty accurate. If I've had a a, a good night's sleep, it will tell me that, and I know. Mm. You know, intuitively when you've had a good night's sleep or not, and it, it, yeah. I think mine's pretty accurate. Um, mm. You know, and last night actually, ironically, I said I didn't have a good night's sleep. I seem to have slept the same amount of time. But you're right, maybe it was a couple of beers that uh, made my breathing could, rate and it could well didn't be, give yes. me the best sleep. Yeah. So I sure. started, yeah, I, I, I measured it for a long time and then I stopped because you, otherwise I'd get… Analysis paralysis. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. And um, I started again because in July I want to try and do this Tour de France, half the tour again, mm. as a study in deliberate overtraining because that's what it'll be. Mm. And I want to be able to compare heart rate variability. So at some stage we'll, we'll, we'll revisit this. Yeah. In a in a case study of it's one, a good topic me. that yeah, HRV I think that's what they, yeah that's and that's why as I say you know Marco Altini is is uh, in fact his pinned tweet resting heart rates and heart rate variability what's the difference and he's written these fairly lengthy detailed pieces and you can go and read up on them and but yeah I'd be handy to we've we tried to get some people on it before mm. but we'll do it in the future I hope. Sounds like a good topic, and it is something that I mean we could talk about this probably for the entire hour of this podcast today because mm. there are so many discussions out there. But it'd be a good idea to park that one and do a more detailed version of that down the line. Yeah, exactly. So talking about cycling, something that came up in your zeitgeist was uh, this Eritrean 
sprinter that uh, probably most famously, and this was an interesting thing, is when uh, when Biniam Gurmai, the 21-year-old who won the stage of the Giro d'Italia, also won Gen Vevelgem, um, also... He didn't. He wouldn't have necessarily made the pages of CNN and BBC News and all these sort of normal sites, um, unless what actually happened post his win at the Giro stage actually hadn't happened. And for those of you in the cycling world, you'll know what happened is that he was trying to open the the champagne on the uh, Prose- on the Prosecco, sorry, uh, the Prosecco, yeah, to the Italian one. Shot the cork off into his eye, and after this amazing, famous victory, first black African to win a stage of a Grand Tour. He was forced to basically leave the tour because he'd injured his eye because of mm. this cork uh, that had shot into his eye. And it wasn't the first time that it actually happened at the Giro because the week previously, uh, Matteo van der Poel had done exactly the same thing, not into his eye, but it knocked his cap off. <laughs> and as a result of that, the organizers of the Giro, this is what makes me quite amused, then started, well, instead of putting the cork in, they gave the, they gave the bottles of, of Prosecco now to the athletes after that with the corks taken out already because they didn't want to risk another injury. And that's a, it's, a, it's a funny story, isn't it? Well, I think that, you see, they created the problem because they gave them really, really big bottles yes. and they couldn't pick it up. Can't pick it up. So they had to bend over it in order to uncork it. If they'd given them normal-sized bottles, they'd have been able to hold it like in, you see in a Formula One. Anyway, that's... But it was, you, it was there a actually shame. is a video of it on... I saw it on Eurosport, I think it was, but you actually see the moment that Gamaya gets hit in the, in, the, in the eye with this bottle and he's literally leaning over it and he's mm. trying to wrench off this cork. And uh, for those of you who've opened a bottle of champagne, I'm sure you know what it's like. You've really got to see the ease out and then suddenly it pops off. And uh, <laughs> it, 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 was, it was amusing if it hadn't hurt him, obviously, quite seriously. Yeah, and I mean, it could have actually even been worse. Eh? Like, you yeah. could actually have really bad damage. You could lose eyes that way. I haven't seen anything post that, whether he has recovered. I try to find some details about whether so he, he was recovered. So he had a hematoma behind the cornea, I think it was. Which is basically... Bleed. A bleed. Yeah. yeah. Which has to be treated. You've got to cover it up, you know, and that was why he couldn't race, because you can't ride it mm. with one eye. I mean, it's dangerous, yeah. even with two. So he then went back to Eritrea, and the subsequent photographs I've seen, he's not wearing anything, and he looks fine, and I would imagine he might end up riding the tour, which could turn out to be, actually, for the season and for the tour, quite a good thing. Big time. Sad for him, because he, am I right in saying he did five top fives at the time of that win in that one Jira? In the Jira, yeah, absolutely. And so, he was always in the mix in the sprint. And so he would have been, mm. okay, I think DeMar in the end was, was too too good to lose that um, sprinter's jersey, but he mm. was he was right up there. So, And then, then I, I got an email about him. I cannot remember who it was from. It was in Patreon or Twitter. I can't remember. Sorry uh, for that. But saying that this would be really interesting to discuss because, you know, we've all we've all lived through and seen the emergence of East African running dominance. Mm. And now you see, okay, actually, could this be the start of a cycling dominance from the same part of the world? And in sports science, the dominance of the Kenyan, Ethiopian, Ugandan, Eritrean runners has been a subject of a great deal of debate mm. because it's really fascinating. Is it a physiological difference? Is it a lifestyle difference? Is it economically driven? And so now we might end up having the same on cycling because you see, if those things are different, it might actually tell us what the core Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop 
dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I mean, there are examples of runners that started off inciting Eritrea, which is mm. strange to think that that would happen because normally it would be the other way around. Where you've seen, um, I think it was uh, it was Tedessa, I think who was yes. who was who started off with the cycling interest, um, yeah, so and then Zersene, became a runner. Zersene Tedessi is probably the best half marathon runner ever, mm. like multiple world titles, world records. He, he didn't ever. He was one of the three guys who ended up in that sub two attempt, but probably is the one who, yes. who least reached the target you know he, and he never he never really turned his half marathon ability into a marathon everyone thought he would be an unbelievable marathon runner but he didn't quite figure it out mm. but he started as a cyclist yeah he was a really good teenage level cyclist in Eritrea winning their races because it's never been but apparently it's a big deal there mm. I mean it, if it was before it'll definitely be now yeah, absolutely um and then couldn't quite make the transition to the 200k rides in Europe and, and the racing situation and so on and someone said to him you know you've, if you're fit you've obviously got a lot going for you why don't you run first race he wins the rest is history. running history not cycling so yeah so Eritrea has been I think on most people's radar as a cycling country for a while because there is, seems to be a Reddit piece talking about how the very much the Italian cycling culture has infiltrated Eritrea, mm. and there's a link between the Italian cycling culture, and so there is this culture, and we know that in places like Rwanda, the Tour of Rwanda has become this huge cycling event with massive crowds on the side of the road, and as a result of that support and the and the, and the pictures that we've seen of the Tour of Rwanda, is that the World Cycling Championships are happening there in 2025. That's mm, how important. Mm. Rwanda has become as a global place for cycling. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, it was a matter of time, but also we can understand economically, it's just cycling is, is the barriers to entry are enormous. Yeah. I mean, you, you've been involved and you know of, and so have I, in projects here in Cape Town mm. to try and get cycling into the like, less well-developed communities, you know, the, the impoverished communities. There have been a number of campaigns. Quebec, when they were a pro team, part of it was built around that idea of growing cycling in Africa. But it's difficult because bikes get stolen. Yeah. And they, they, they need maintenance and care. And like the cost of keeping a bike rolling is high. <laughs> and just getting the, 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 the bikes so, that you need to have to compete at a world-class level is not easy in some African countries. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah so it creates, it creates this dilemma where you know that there might be talent there, but unless you invest heavily, you'll never discover the talent. Yeah. But no one's investing heavily till the talent is discovered. So who, what happens first, you know? And slowly, I think it starts to develop, like in Eritrea and Rwanda and so on. Because there's no, there's no mm. reason why they shouldn't be able to produce world-class cyclists. Yeah, I've always had this theory, and I don't know whether it's the theory, but I think there is a lot of evidence to support it in saying that the best development that you can do in sport is to create heroes mm. and once somebody does what in a sport once they see somebody be able to compete at a level from your community once you see that you think you can do the same thing i mean think about people like daniel tiklahamanot he was the great eritrean rider rode for the quebec team many many years ago what the king of the mountains at the tour de france the support for him and the other eritreans that were in that team was enormous at the tour de france mm. to such an extent that it was almost fanatical and i think 
I don't know. I haven't read anything about whether Gemaya was inspired by necessarily Tegla Hymenot, but I think you could probably say that because of Tegla Hymenot and the other Eritrean riders that have made it to the Tour de France, he was probably inspired by that at some point in his career, realized that an Eritrean could be at the Tour de France, and maybe that gave him the push to say, well, let me take this on. I'm sure that it does. Yeah. Um, the thing the thing that it needs is that however that champion is made must be available to the person who then wants to imitate that. Yes. Makes sense? So, But the desire is strong. It's amazing how you can find a way. Y- yeah, but if as long as people will help make that way. And yeah. again, that, that brings you back to the whole barriers to entry and cycling. I think it's the same, by the way, with women. You know, this race I did at the weekend, I think there were like seven women in the whole race. Yeah, but it was a relatively small field and a pretty yeah, hardcore race. but 100 riders. Yeah. So it's like single-digit percentage. Yeah. So you can look at this, you say, well, how do we how do we solve this problem? And there are so many barriers to cycling. Here in Cape Town, it's traffic, congestion, safety, cost, and so on. Yeah. So it'll be the same in many places. But you're right, once you get like momentum and there's a little community and you reinvest knowledge then it happens quicker and quicker and quicker. Mm. And then it's that that's where it gets, I think, sometimes, it's not confusing, but it's interesting for sports scientists because they look, for instance, that phenomenon played out in, in Kenya. But it wasn't Kenya. It wasn't even a section of Kenya. It was a tribe in Kenya. Yes. It was the Kalenjin tribe and specifically a sub-tribe called the Nandi. And I wrote a paper back in probably the middle 2010s, somewhere in the teens, with Jordan Santos, who was a Spanish postdoc student yes, out here. Yes, I remember him. Yes. <laughs> and um, we did an analysis of the sub-tribe from which those elite athletes came. And the Nandis are overrepresented like you wouldn't believe. And if, if the success of the Nandis was replicated by Europe, they would have had thousands of Olympic champion and sub-204 marathon runners. It's, it's mad. Yeah. So then you look at that, you say, well, is that is that because young kids in those communities where the Nandi live are imitating... <coughs> runners is it because of physiology what's what explains that you see because the one doesn't happen almost without the other right yes you need a bit of both yeah mm. yeah you can't you can't make gold from rocks <laughs> yeah you need there to be gold but then you need the yeah. the tools with which to extract those rocks mm. that contain that gold mm. so it's really very interesting and i've heard people now say you know this is going to be the first of if you go if you go back to the 1960s was when the east africans first appeared by the 1970s, they were winning. Then, okay, there was some disruption caused by Olympic boycotts. But by the late 80s and into the 90s, you basically didn't find a marathon that wasn't being won by Kenyan, Ethiopian. And that's the case even now. Yeah. With a few exceptions. Baldini won the 204 Olympics. Um, Rupp got a medal in London, I think it was. Rio, I think Rio, Rio mm. rather, on the marathon. Slightly better on the women's marathon front, really. Yeah, it's been a little bit better. Africa, there. But, yeah. which, is, which is, again, like women came after the men in Kenya because I think there were socioeconomic and cultural things that held women back mm. in, in those communities, mm. like is happening in cycling in Cape Town even, never mind in the rest of Africa. So it, it'll be interesting, like in 30 years from now, to say was... Um, this victory in the Giro, and, and you mentioned the classics earlier against Valgum, was that the first of what will become a similar dominance in cycling? I, I doubt it, but mm. we could well see 10 East Africans in the next 15 years. Well, Matt Stevens, the interview that I saw with him, he's obviously predicting that this is the start of the wave, but then people mm. said that when Tegla Harmonot and his team in Quebec were part of it, this was the African wave of riders that were coming through. We haven't necessarily seen that happen. One of the questions, and it's a physiological question, is that I've always thought that 
we talk about the physiology of African runners, for instance, mm. compared to Western um, European runners, where just the physiology of their leg structure is different from right. what we see. So we talk about how those East Africans have got very thin calves, long Achilles tendons. They're super light on their feet. They've mm-hmm. got all these things that are really made for, for running. But I always thought that that advantage in running was actually a disadvantage in cycling. So if you look at all of the riders that you see in the peloton, the Tour de France, big calves, um, they've got a different structure to their legs than potentially cyclists do. Is there a challenge for those African, the physiology of those African runners in cycling in terms of what they need to be a good cyclist? Yes, I think so. It's the first thing you think of if you say, right, could, could we see the same in cycling as in running? is you say, well, what's the difference between cycling and running? And yeah. the main difference is that one of them is a is a push exercise and the other one is a bounce. <laughs> and so in running, so much of it is is energy storage and return, which is why the shoe made a difference, for instance, because yeah. it contributed to that component of running performance. That's why the Achilles tendons. There's a paper by Carl Foster and Alejandro Luthia, which looks at the calf circumference of elite distance runners and relates it to VO2 max. The skinnier your calves are, the better your, not, not VO2 max, economy. The skinnier your calves are, the better your economy, which is yeah. a good thing. In running. It means you're using less oxygen to run the same speed. The aforementioned Tedesi is one of the subjects in that study, by the way. In fact, a lot of them are Eritrean runners. So, so one of the advantages or set of the advantages for East African runners might be the shape of the calf, the length of the tendon, the, in fact, the, the leg length relative to height, you know, like long skinny legs, mm. small bodies. Those things m- won't translate as well to cycling as they do to running. Yeah. You know, that if you talk about born to run, that's what born to run looks like. Correct. Born to ride looks quite different. Or, or not, I don't know if it looks quite different, but it looks more variable. Yes. You'll have different shapes and sizes. So Vote for Night and Funderpool can ride not, not exactly the same level as your Carapaz Back in the day, Pantani, Bernal, you know, the pure climbers. And then you get the, in the middles, like Pogaccia and Roglic. But but the point is that the concentric contribution of pushing the quads Mm. in cycling might not be the thing that East Africans can bring across uniquely, the way that they can the, 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 the... elasticity and the tendons and so on because that's the that's the question that most people will say mm. they've got the heart and the lungs we know from a cardiovascular pers- perspective they mm. are you know right up there and they can definitely compete but physically there is a physiological reason why they're not necessarily yes. there's going to see this massive wave of african riders coming through because there's a physiological there is there is aspect. a potential there and it's, a, it's almost like a mechanical reason you know yes. it's, it's physiology but it's a biomechanics explanation mm. The other, the only other advantage that has been documented in the runners is that they're, because they're altitude natives, and not just they are, but they've got alt- altitude ancestry. We, we've got some data, again, the, the same Spanish postdoc, Jordan Santos. <coughs> Excuse me. He, uh, he did a study out here that I was involved in where we measured brain oxygenation and found that those East Africans are better able to defend it because when your brain oxygenation starts to drop off, fatigue is not far behind. Because, yeah. I mean, that's not the organ you want to deprive of oxygen. So it makes sense that there's this protective failure built into the system. And the theory is that your exposure to altitude from as early as the womb might give you some protection in that respect. And that might be an, that will translate to cycling, potentially, as will the heart, the lungs, and so on. But the, 
the, the muscle contraction and the tendon contributions might be the thing that kind of levels the playing field. And just on that, mm. it's, not, it's not, by the way, that East Africans have uniquely skinny calves and long tendons. You will find Italians and Spanish and Japanese and Americans and South Africans with the same body types. But just my theory is in far fewer numbers. Yeah. So a random sample of 100 South Africans, 100 Italians, and 100 East Africans will produce five in South Africa, eight in Italy, and 25 in East Africa yeah. with the hardware. It's the preponderance. It's the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then, then onto that preponderance, you overlay the economic incentives. Mm -hmm. You overlay the history and the collective knowledge that's been accumulated and reinvested. Mm -hmm. And you overlay the culture, aspirational. Cultures. Yeah, and the culture which is created by that aspirational element mm -hmm. of it. That's what, that's what in the end means that they are, they're not overrepresented by a factor of three or four. It's three or four hundred. <laughs> Yeah. Because each of those things amplifies the other. Yeah. So there's no single mechanism. So again, when we look at cycling, do they have the infrastructure? Maybe in some places. Do they have the physiology? Probably, at least comparable to the world. Mm -hmm. Now the question is, do they have the opportunities and the culture and the culture and the knowledge? Certainly and there are pockets in Africa where the culture is strong. And it's growing. It's and growing. Like, so yeah. Gurma now makes it grow even more. Yeah. The acceleration in that is going to be profound. And, and, I've he's, always and he's a superstar in Eritrea right. as a result of that. So he's not gone back. Like if a South African, like we saw people like Daryl Impey winning the, yeah, and we had the yellow jersey, it's, it's relatively small news mm. in South Africa, mm. even though for us in the cycling community it's a bit big. But in Eritrea, somebody wins the a classic. It's, it's huge news. Yeah, like, we saw parades. Yeah, big time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I've always felt it takes three, year, three generations on these things to, mm. to cause it. The first generation... Are the pioneers who who mm. sort of get it right but not perfect? Mm. That was your Tekla Hymenot. yeah. Like the first guy who yeah. we saw, and, and okay, he, he inspires generation two. Generation two get it right, and then generation three perfect it. Yeah, and so it's the it's the fifteen sixteen year old. So I think you still have to give it five or six years before you see the true effect of of uh, Germay and others. Mm. I've always for me the the single talent ID question is. It's 2022. We know that a Tour de France champion or a cycling champion is going to be 25 to 28. Mm -hmm. That means that that person right now, if we think in 10 years in the future, is 16, 17 years old. What's he doing? And that, that's. And if that kid is watching Goma and saying, you know, I've got a bike, I've got a group to ride with, yeah, and I've got some coaching support and advice to do not the worst. I don't think you need that much coaching when you're that young, but you need some support. Mm -hmm. That kid is the guy in 10 years' time who will fulfill the yeah. aspirational promise created by Gurma. And I would agree 100% with you that the timeline is that long. Mm. It's not suddenly that Gurma is one in the next two or three years we're going to see a whole bunch of road trains coming through. Gurma is going to inspire generation. He's only 21 years old himself mm. and won the silver medal at the World Championships in the under-23 last year. So he's still got another year as an under-23 but you're right. It's the 16, 17 year age group where they're suddenly going to come through and that's going to be the generation after him to mm. some extent. Be um, interesting to see how that's exploited as well, by yes. the way, because um, there's a number of trains in the professional peloton, not all at the at the top, top, top level, but also mm. in that second layer, the continental tour. <clears throat> and I'm sure that that will grow now because people will send scouts. Yes. And they'll ask, where's the next guy? You know, And then so that also perpetuates and accelerates the process. That's the case in Kenya. I mean, there's, there's, 
you can call them what you want, vultures or scouts, whatever. I mean, they're a necessary evil in some respects, but they are there looking all the time. Mm. And that will happen now for those East African countries. And then does it spread? You know, do we start saying, well, if Eritrea can, Uganda should. Well, what's the difference? If And of course, well, and the Rwanda should be. <coughs> Rwanda, Rwanda should be a big. Almost certainly will in time. Yeah. The difference yeah. is culture, of course. Yes. You know? Like China. Well, culture has the culture. Rwanda has the culture mm. of cycling and it's massively supportive, right. but maybe not the physiology of the East Africans. Well, that could be. I mean, <laughs> like they, they've been they've been good Rwandan, Burundian long distance runners, mm, that, but they're not as doubt, common as not as many. And, and, and again, you see, then it's fascinating. Is that physiology or is that infrastructure and mm. opportunity and so on? Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, and I think. I mean, has he said if he's going to race the tour? No, I haven't seen anything because Be surprised as I, if he doesn't. I haven't seen much about he is that he is coming back. But uh, um, but whether he's doing the tour, I would imagine, given the hype around him and with his Wanty Gobert team, you know, mm. they've got a strong team. They're a they're really a B, almost a B um, level team. Mm. But now they are right up there with some of the best. We've got our own South African Louis Mankies in there as well, mm. who's got the chance of being in the top 10 in the GC with his climbing abilities, having a great season this year. We've seen Jan Hurt winning stages of the of the Giro. Um, so they're, they're really a team that have mm. completely um, blown the, the big teams out of the water to some extent. And I would imagine they would be very keen to have him at the Tour de France. I mean, if you're riding that wave of success and you've got a guy who's going to be yeah. one of the five big stories of a Tour de France, you, you should be looking to Sponsors take him. will want him there, I would imagine. I mean, and like the only thing against it would be responsible management of the guys given mm. his age and so on. But even if you let him race up to the second rest day in week two, yeah. end of week Get two. Get a couple of stages in. And you see if you can have him in the sprinter's jersey and win one or two stages. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a... And just protect him from the uh, from the uh, Prosecco mm. bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's yeah. exciting. exciting it's very exciting, yeah. and, and it'll be interesting to see how it develops, you know? Yeah, yeah. let us know yeah. what you think. Uh, if you're uh, following us on Twitter on SportsSciPod, um, do you think the future of cycling around the world will come from Africa, or are we just... Have we got an outlier in uh, Vinayam Gurmai? Is he just one of those guys that's come out of the woodwork and we won't see him again? It'll be interesting to see. Maybe we can track it in 10 years' time to mm. see whether the new generation comes as a result of his performance over the last couple of months. So let's move on to another topic, and this is our big topic of today. We've got about 20 minutes in which we're going to discuss this, and this is a paper that Ross, and well, not just a paper, but a bit of research that Ross has been doing into particularly the women's sport versus men's sport debate. And it hangs around a sport that I'm not particularly okay with, but I, I've done a bit of research into this, and that's <laughs> how soccer. Many, how many soccer matches have you watched I haven't in watched your life? a whole soccer match myself, and I am embarrassed to tell you that because I, I'm doing a science of sport podcast. I should watch more soccer, but <laughs> I, I do struggle with soccer a little bit. And that's why, to some extent, some of the subjects in this particular debate are interesting to me because the piece of um, literature that you sent me was all about how they looked at the sport of women's soccer, compared it to men, and why things like goal size, ball size, all that sort of thing, that women's soccer was really up against it because they were playing in the same size field, the same mm. ball, the same goal, but actually the task that they had to do was much higher than it would have than it is on the men's game, purely because of physiology. And that obviously has impacts not only on soccer, but across sport and and women's sport right. and various <clears throat> different sports. Yeah, so this paper caught my eye because it comes up as you can imagine, I've been involved in this debate around women's sport and the protection of women's sport against male advantage. 
listeners will be relieved to know that's not what this discussion it's is about. It's not a transgender like, debate. It's not a transgender <laughs> debate, which I'm also as relieved as you are about. But this paper was shared on Twitter. I forget who exactly shared it, but it was done by these Norwegians, and and the the t- it was published in a in a <coughs> journal called uh, let me just check, Frontiers in Psychology, which is interesting for the subject matter. But nevertheless, it's called Scaling Demands of Soccer According to Anthropometric, which is to say body size, body shape, length, proportions, and physiological sex differences: a fairer comparison of men's and women's soccer. And one of the interesting things by Arvo Voland Pedersen is the main author on it, um, published out of Trondheim, Norway. It starts with a quote from one Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who Mike would probably not know. <laughs> Do you know the name? No. Okay. <laughs> I know Jamaluddin Abdujaparov, but I don't know that guy. <laughs> so Zlatan Ibrahimovic is a very well-known footballer. Play, he's played all over the world, and he's one of the sort of icons of football, striker from Sweden. <clears throat> and he's quoted... And I'm going to read the full quote. There's a section of this quote in the, in the scientific article, which is quite interesting. He says, with all respect for what the ladies have done, and they've done it fantastically well, you can't compare men's and women's football. Give it up. It's not even funny. When I come out in Europe and they compare me to Messi and Ronaldo, because he's a bit, he's a bit vain like this, Ibrahimovic. When I come home, they compare me to a female player. <laughs> with all respect for the ladies, they should be rewarded in relation to what they generate financially. Now, there's a topic. Of debate. Then he goes on, he says, I was asked by the Swedish media in the summer who was the better player, me or the Swedish striker Lotte Schellen. <laughs> You're joking with me, right? When I've broken all these records, this goal record, the goals in the national team, who shall I compare it to? Shall I compare it to whoever has the record or the ladies? So <laughs> this is this it's is a, the kind spicy. of Yeah, it is. I mean and, and actually like it's a debate that comes up a lot. It came up recently in rugby because Someone shared, I think it was a podcast, shared a stat about the most caps ever for England. Mm-hmm. And they shared it for a men's player. You know, congratulations. But in actual fact, a woman player had more caps than this. And when this was pointed out to the guy, a guy called James Haskell, he doubled down on it. And it became just really nastily sexist and, and unpleasant. Mm. And it happens quite a lot. And it's, it's part of, the I think, the struggle that women's sport is fighting for equality and recognition. Just recently... U.S. women's soccer became, I think, the first to say that they are going to pay their women as much as their men in terms of their base salary to play for the national team. Mm-hmm. I read two days ago that in Canada there's a negotiation and they're inching towards that themselves. So for the first time, we're starting to see financial parity. You've covered cycling. You would have seen perhaps earlier this year, I think Annemiek van Vleuten was saying, forget about equal prize money, just give us equal salaries. That'll be the first thing that needs to change. But yeah. as it is, like at Paris-Roubaix, for the women last year when, um, uh, oh, I've gone completely blank, the English Lizzie... Uh, Lizzie Dagnan. Yeah, she won that race. Yeah. The prize money was like, not even half them, it was like a tenth of the men's, if that. So there's these huge disparities. And so the reality is that like women's sport is still really trying to claw its way back to the same level as the men. And we're actually seeing a Tour de France for the women this year. For, for the, the first, first time. time yeah. yeah, what a, a short version. And still. that's great, like what progress. But yeah. then you read quotes like Ibrahimovic and you realize how entrenched this culture is of like relativism in performance. And that's the battle that women's sport has to try and overcome. It's so also that, relativism in terms of the revenues because there's right. no doubt that there are certain elements of men's sport that are more attractive in terms of the TV audience, advertisers, all those sort of things, putting the money in. So you could say, well, there's probably more money in some elements of men's sport. Not yeah. all sport, but and, some and, men's And that's the great catch-22, right? Because... Mm. Until you invest in women's sports, it's not going to have that appeal. 
to attract investment in women's sports. So you, yeah. you really have created for themselves like a proper dilemma. It came up last week actually in France because Amélie Maresma, who's the tournament director at the French Open, was asked about why the night session, which I guess is primetime TV, was so infrequently occupied by a women's match. You know, it was always men's games. And she said that it's just really difficult to find a women's match with appeal and basically said that women's tennis is less appealing than men's. And, and, and you, could maybe, you could maybe argue that, you know, she's in her second language and her, her point was very specific that she might have been thinking about Djokovic and Nadal on a night match. I mean, that's the yes. game. Or uh, Nadal's Zverev or whatever it was, you know. Because there's no doubt that <laughs> a Djokovic-Nadal game is going to be the draw card. Yeah, and there's no, there's no one. It is irrespective of sex. It's yeah. that's the game. They're, they're the big names. But but I guess the point is that unless you put those big names on in that prime time slot, how do they ever become big names? You know, and I pointed out that the the women's champion in France is from the French Open is probably the dominant athlete at the moment in the world. Igor Swiatek of Poland mm. hasn't lost a game in like I think it's thirty five, thirty six. Won the French Open losing one set. That set that she lost, up to that point, she'd won 44 out of 45 sets she played on that win streak. She said so it's now 52 out of 54. I mean, it's dominance like you haven't seen since Serena Williams at her very peak. Mm. And how many people know this? Yeah, and, and, so and, if and you to be honest with you, before we did this podcast, right. I said to you, I don't actually know who the world's number one no, she is. women's tennis player is she, because there seems to be this sort of every month there seems to be a new crop of female tennis mm. players coming into the sport, whereas in men's sport, you kind of know the Federers and the Nadals. And if you're not a tennis fan, those are the people that you know. Yeah, granted. So it's a little bit more difficult maybe to keep track because the the churn, for want of a better word, is high. I mean, yeah. it would make for actually, I mean, I've always thought of this and never gotten around to it because it's a bit tedious, but to do an analysis of how many Grand Slam champions there have been on the women's side in the last 20 years compared to the men. Because the men, 90% of them are occupied by three people. Yes, correct. Murray, Del Potro, and... Uh, Chilich sure. have won one, but the rest of it's the big three. Yeah, um, and Medvedev now has finally broken through that in the mm. in recent months, right? Well, uh, towards the end of last year, and Zverev before him. Whereas on the women, I reckon it's probably thirty. Yeah, and how many times has the number one ranking changed? Probably ten times more often in the men's side. So, so I, I get that, but I suppose the challenge is if you don't put the Shrontex and the Coco Goffs on that court in the prime time, you're going to actually only just entrench that perception that there's no consistent name on the top of the sport you know what i mean it's so there's a real there's a real dilemma there because you you need to give the stage in order for them to occupy it and grow it yeah i mean that's a, in my mind that's a debate because to some extent the the big three as you just mentioned are the big three because they've been so dominant in the sport they're fantastic to watch we always mm. look at Nadal and Djokovic's um, everything from the Australian Open to the French and how amazing those games are to watch and even if you're not a tennis fan mm. you will probably engage with that to some extent even if it's highlights but, but as you say the churn on the women's tour doesn't necessarily bring to mind somebody that I want to watch if I had to right. say whatever games I want to watch in tennis but that wasn't the case maybe 10 years ago, no. six years ago, where women's tennis was actually Correct. probably more popular than yeah. men's tennis. There was a time I remember like you couldn't find a men's game that was really captivating. 100%. But the women had five or six characters. There were storylines, there were plots. Sharapova there were, was a big were, story. There were comebacks, there were yeah. retirements, young and then returns. And and the thing is it'll work in the other direction in the future because I suspect actually it's the big two now, right? I don't know where Federer's status is. He'll yeah. try, I'm sure. But I, 
Hmm. If you play tennis so infrequently, I can't see you getting to the top. But at some point, they'll both be gone, and then we'll be left with, and no discredit, but it's, it's the same problem, like Rublev against Kaperud. Yeah. Or Coco Goff against Frontek. Now, see, though, that's an equal match again. Mm. So I don't disagree that the big three, now we're on tennis as opposed to this article, but I suppose this is the point. It's the point. Is is um th- they will tr- they will draw the spotlight and they should but there's a there's a question i think for the sports to say actually you know what if we don't invest in growing it it's not going to grow by itself you know we have mm. to we have to nurture this thing a little bit well the angle and the reason so, why one of the questions you asked at the start of this is why did this particular paper come from the frontiers of psychology <laughs> and one of the things they mention in that is that because there is this perception that women's sport I and mean, particularly when it comes to soccer is not as good as men's sport the soccer players themselves feel that they are not getting their due. They feel that they are not as good as. There's a mm. lot of issues involved in that. And that it, I think that plays out in all the sports is that if you're not given a sport, given it some airtime, that sport itself doesn't feel that it's as important. Yeah, exactly. And women's soccer is a prime example right. of that. That's why it's more a psychological issue as much as it is physiological. Right, and the, and the quote by Ibrahimovic is terribly unfair. I mean, the, yes. you see, because nobody would make that comparison between, and they make this analogy in the paper, watching a high jump competition. You wouldn't, you wouldn't discount and mock the women's high jump winner because they cleared 207, whereas the men's winner cleared 241. Mm-hmm. Because you understand, actually, that they're both at the very pinnacle of their respective categories. This, I suppose, could lead us down the whole men's, women's sport and trance thing again. But we'll steer clear of that. The, the point they're making is that we then make this comparison in soccer. So Ibrahimovic has done it. Who's better, me or the Swedish striker? Well, don't ask that question. It's not a competition between you and that striker. 100%. You're in sec- separate categories for very good reasons. And that's the context in which this paper is written. And mm. so basically they're saying, right, Given that there are biological differences, body shape, size, um, strength, power, jump height, for instance, kicking ability, speed and the kick, maybe women's football looks different because they're playing in the same rules as the men. And then they go into what is quite a detailed and systematic evaluation of what it is about men and women that differs. The obvious thing is height, for instance, and they Mm -hmm. make the point that the average man is 8% taller than the average woman which works out to a, a hands difference in centimeter terms, right? Mm-hmm. And they say that difference put in the same size goal means that men on average are 75% the height of the goal, women are 69% of the height of the goal. Yeah. And that 6% could be quite important. Yeah. How do you save a penalty when you've got to cover that much more ground? Mm. Aerial ability of the goalkeeper and so on, saving balls. Men can touch the crossbar without jumping, women can't in, in a typical case. So they make all these, the, the weight of the ball, for instance. They say that the men's ball is, r- given the strength of the leg and mm. the size of the foot, a men's ball is too large and too heavy for women to play yeah. with. And they give, the, they give a great counterfactual, or, or hypothetical rather, where they say, imagine there was a third sex, which was in the, other, the same difference between men and women, but in the other direction. So in other words, supermen, <laughs> effectively. Yeah. They say that if men were playing, if those men were playing with a ball the, s- the same relative size as the women have to play with, it would be a basketball. Yeah. So imagine now watching a men's football match where the ball is as large and as heavy as a basketball. Because that's effectively what women are doing. That's what women are doing. So right. would that change what you're looking at? Mm. Arguably it has to. Yes. 
You can't kick it as fast. The passing is going to be less um, crisp and precise. Everything about it changes as a consequence of that, you see. So that's, that's, the, that's the angle they argue. Now, when you read that, this will be polarizing, by the way. In rugby, we, we explored a year ago. We, we looked at, no, sorry, just it got interrupted by COVID. The year before COVID, we were exploring whether playing with a smaller ball would have impact, positive impacts on women's rugby. And the obvious reason there is that men's hands are 10% bigger than women's hands. 100%. So a woman's rugby ball should be 10% smaller Yeah. to be the same. <laughs> and that has implications because passing accuracy, ability to offload in the tackle. I mean, extreme example is hold a tennis ball and a football and th think about how much different skill you can do with a tennis ball compared yeah. to football. Yeah. When we discussed that, incidentally, because we were going to trial it and we did, when we discussed it with women's rugby players, they were very evenly split for and against doing it. Hmm. So sometimes the women don't want to be different, you see, and one must respect that also. Be interested to know, like, do women want to play on what would it be a smaller field with smaller goals and a slightly lighter and smaller ball? Hmm. Yes, because no. lots of women will say that in many sports, <laughs> the challenge is the same. Um, mm. You know, marathon running, right. uh, Ironman, triathlon, all mm. that sort of thing. The challenge is the mm -hmm. same. But, but there are lots of sports where it is different. Exactly. Yeah. So in shot put, for instance, men use a weight that is almost twice as heavy as women. You know, it's 7.26 kilograms for men, 4 kilograms for women. Yeah. Uh, the javelin is 800 grams for men, 600 for women. Hammer uses the same weight as the shot. Discus is 2 kilogram men and 1 kilogram women. Now, the reason for that is that you want the performance to look the same. Yes. And when you compare... The winning times, uh, the winning distances, sorry, of discus, hammer, shot put events, they're quite similar mm. with different weights. Mm. If you gave the men one kilogram discus, they'd throw it clear across the mm. stadium. Mm. <laughs> or two kilogram women's discus would go 40 meters. Mm. So they've made a decision to try and match performance with different equipment. Mm. Tennis, soccer have decided to have the same equipment. The consequence might be different performance. Interesting one is basketball and handball. Mm. Both got smaller balls for men. Yeah. Right. So, that, so it's yeah. quite interesting like to, mm. to speculate. And it's a philosophical question maybe. Why do some sports go that way of different rules and equipment and others don't? And, you know, th there have been debates recently about cross country. I know now at the World Champs, the men and the women do 10Ks. It used to be 12 for men, 8 for women. This is stupid. Why not? Cycling, we see the same. Um, yeah. Perry Ray is... 70, 80 k shorter for the woman. Mm. There's no reason physiologically that it needs to be that way. I read it's more about the TV time that the, if the woman's race was the same distance, they wouldn't have enough time to air it in mm. terms of TV time because obviously suppose, the women are riding slightly slower than the men. I suppose that's what happens with cyclocross and yeah. mountain biking is they, they do it by time, not distance, which, right. is, which is fair. So there's justifiable reasons. But mm. nevertheless, the, the paper is interesting because it makes us ask some questions about how we evaluate and look at women's sports. And, you know, the, these Norwegians, I think they're quite sympathetic, saying that a lot of the time women's soccer gets a lot of criticism and the women actually face abuse and, and quite unpleasant yeah. um, comments from people. But in actual fact... Particularly the goalkeepers, apparently. Yeah, that's the one... They get, the one, they get nailed the most because mm. they're letting in goals. And they argue, I would argue that if there's more goals being let in, it was probably more entertaining as a game. I bugbear with soccer and men's soccer in particular is the goals. lack of goals. Mm. Well, yeah. I think that that's probably true, but there'll still be 
entertainment and criticism of the goalkeeper. Yeah. You know? And and then, and they argue in the paper that the goalkeeper is the player most exposed by these differences in height and the size of the goals, and the smaller hands relative to the ball and all these sorts of things. So it's quite interesting, and I would be very interested to hear from women about that because mm-hmm. you know in the rugby argument to me it was like oh no brainer you know make the ball smaller and you'll, <coughs> you'll open up a world of skill execution to these players. I mean how do you ask a player in a tackle to? flip the ball out of the back of the hand like Sonny Boy Williams when the ball's 20% too big. Yeah. yeah. I mean, imagine. But they weren't as keen. Yeah. Which is their prerogative because it's Because I guess there's, some, there's a huge element in women's sports and I, I would be interested, as you say, to hear from women who do play in those sports that the equity is important. Mm. You know, we don't want to be running shorter distances and lighter stuff because men are, you know, women can do what men can do. Mm. But the reality is that there are some aspects of it which make the sport Better to watch, exactly. Yeah, more accessible, right. more skillful, mm-hmm. um, all those sort of things, which I mean, I may, might help the sports in general. The, we spoke about tennis. We can come back to the French Open's great to watch because the rallies are longer mm-hmm. on the clay. When we get to Wimbledon, women's tennis becomes, in my opinion, more watchable than men because Absolutely. men's tennis is now so dominated by the serve. I reckon mm. the average rally length is one and a half, mm. and women it'll be four. Mm. And so there's a there's an engage. I find that more entertaining to watch. Yeah. So I actually watched the World um, Squash Championships in Cairo on television the other day, and I was watching the men's and women's final. I can tell you the women's final was way more entertaining, mm. purely because the men are so good that it's almost boring to watch. It's just a game of attrition, whereas the women's game is... When you say good, well, I mean the women, are, the women are as good. They're as good. But the men are so powerful. They're so powerful. Yes. That's the difference. That's true, yes. It's a power whereas game. The women is, there's more skill... Mm in the women's game where they're trying different things, whereas the men's game is just literally yeah. attrition. And that's going to so, happen in, in Wimbledon. Yeah. You're going to get big servers and you're going to get a lot of seven, six sets mm. where there's no break a serve or one break point in a set that decides the game and mm. or the match even. Mm. Whereas the women, you know, you'll see breaks a serve and longer rallies. and mm. Yeah, so it's, for, for me, it's a more attractive proposition to watch. Mm. The best mm. example, I think, and, and this is controversial in itself, is that because you and I both watch a lot of cycling, we, particularly women's cycling has got huge hand-ups over the last couple of years where they really pushed the sport. They've had women's tours. We've got a Tour de France this year, all those sort of things. And it's fantastic for the sport. And certainly I know more about women's cycling than I've ever known before, purely because of the exposure on television. But always the problem is, there in particularly in women's cycling, there is a dominant few riders that are so dominant mm. that we don't get the same racing that we would get maybe at the men's race where it's slightly more open. Mm. And that's a prime example of like, we could say, is women's cycling more attractive or less attractive than men's cycling? I think if there was a more women who are who are more competitive, and there was more chance of somebody winning, um, then we would have it would be just as good. But that's um, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. It's the same for rugby, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, like at the moment, probably one of the most dominant teams in sport is England's women's rugby team. Mm-hmm. They are they are. I mean, the, the World Cups later this year rescheduled from from last year because of COVID and. I mean, I don't know if there's a bigger favorite in a team sport World Cup in the last decade than this England women's rugby team. They are unbelievably good. Yeah. And this, the threat, um, I did some analysis for World Rugby looking at the size and the height and the mass of women's players since the 2014 Rugby World Cup. And in rugby, there's definitely a situation now, as the sport is becoming more professional and advanced, that the haves are getting more and the have-nots are getting less. So you, you, you're seeing actually... a, a as so it's an irony is that you, you'd think that the professionalization of the game will bring it together. It's actually blown it wider open. So the size of the top three or four women's teams, mass, 
and height is now greater than the size of the bottom three or four women's teams than it was five, six years ago. Cool. So that, that represents what actually is a threat to the, to the sport because it, it could become so dominated by two or three. Then it becomes like a football league in Spain. Or, or England might even be heading that way, you know, with the big money that comes in there and so on. So, so that's something to manage for sure. Yeah. And I think it, yeah. it, I think it is the case. That said, I mean, you wouldn't. That's a poor reason not to try and invest and, and grow the sport, right? I mean, you have to do it. Yeah. You just have to make sure you do it in a way that you don't just, you don't just give to those who have head starts even more, and those who didn't have a good head start, they just fall further and further and further behind. Yeah. yeah. Um. And it'll happen. I mean, again, it's the same principle. They eh? three generations. Yeah, yeah. The moment you're seeing generation one, eh? Foss, mm. Van Floyten, uh, Lottie Kopecky. That's really generation one and a half, maybe mm. one and a half. Agreed. Yeah. The first yeah. Tour de France woman. I mean, that's one. Yeah. Yeah. By 2028, you'll be on generation two. And by 2020, 2033, mm. we can now say, okay, now mm. we've got seven riders in every race you've got an equal chance of winning whatever there's the timeline so, so yeah so it's an int- it was an interesting yeah. paper because of all the discussion points it, it opens up i think yeah mm. right so there we have it our first episode of what's on our mind of what we've noticed and things that interest us so we really do invite our patron members to send us a message on patron messenger and let us know about things that are topical to you and let us know what you've sent us maybe even the paper that you've looked up maybe the article and the link and uh and ask the questions that you like to ask and we can get stuck into those um but thanks very much again to professor ross tucker fascinating debate obviously we are also on twitter sports SciPod. And you can let us know, first of all, most importantly, about the women's uh, sport issue. That's always contentious. Love to hear your feedback on that. And uh, good luck to all of the riders running the Tour de France. And hopefully we will see Bini Gumai racing for Eritrea and dominating and uh, taking on the Europeans. But uh, from us, for now, it's goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.